The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, we're joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden, in beautiful Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it has been a very eventful week in China We started the week with the protests on the streets that were dramatic. We talked about that in our Global South podcast, and we wrote a lot about it on the site. But then later in the week, there was the passing of former President Jiang Zemin that happened as well. And I think that this is a passing that largely went unnoticed in Africa. I looked through all of the media coverage, and basically what African media outlets did is they took the AFP or the AP or the Reuters story and just republished it. There wasn't any acknowledgement of the critically important role that Jiang played in China-Africa relations. And it's too bad that there isn't this deeper awareness of it, because really, the current state of China-Africa relations today, one that is a very robust trade relationship, imbalanced, albeit, but robust. And the levels of engagement that we have today in many ways are a credit to President Jiang. And that will be, or at least it should be, part of his legacy. You reflected on it this week in our coverage. Tell us a little bit about why Jiang is so important to China-Africa relations. Yeah, I think his role is really important and maybe not, you know, doesn't get enough attention. He essentially, you know, kicked off the kind of China-Africa relations we know now, which is one that's strongly influenced by trade, one that basically runs on three legs, you know, government to government, party to party, and corporate. You know, before that, the Mao era, the engagement from China and Africa was a lot narrower and particularly kind of focused on supporting ideological struggle, like anti-colonial struggle particularly. Then things went very quiet during the Deng Xiaoping era when China was really focused on building relationships with big Western powers and focusing on its domestic economic growth. And then after the Tiananmen Square incident and when Jiang took over, he in 1996 made this tour of six African countries during which they signed a lot of kind of cooperation and trade agreements and then you know started setting up the forum on China Africa cooperation the big multilateral China plus Africa you know meeting which still defines China Africa relations now and then presided over it in in uh, over the first meeting in the year 2000 so in a way so i was you know i was i was kind of riffing a little bit in our newsletter today on this weird detail that Jiang and queen elizabeth ii were born in the same year and then passed away in the same year and you know kind of i made the point that her legacy in africa is essentially backward looking right kind of like she was she was always there essentially kind of putting a nice face on a terrible colonial regime that was already passing into history whereas a lot of what Jiang did in Africa still hasn't we haven't even seen the full flowering of what he did in Africa yet like in, in a lot of ways I think a lot of that is still coming and particularly because the this kind of the you know kind of I think no one would have expected you know FOCAC to become the kind of force it is now I, I called it it's one of the most important mechanisms for South-South cooperation in the world at the moment I think and also this kind of massive kind of conduit for funding. So it's like around $200 billion of Chinese funding came to Africa via FOCAC. So and, and in the process, Jiang essentially reformulated what development itself means beyond anything related to Africa. You know, like the, the way that the, the impact of FOCAC has reshaped the way that all global powers do business with Africa and to a certain extent how the global south it's, itself is seen and how development is seen. And I think the way that that is going to be shaking out in the next few decades is still unsure. Like we still kind of seeing the fallout on a day-to-day basis. And when we think back to the relationship that Africa had with the outside world in the year 2000, when Jiang hosted the first FOCAC, I think it was a summit back then. Maybe it was a summit. It was a ministerial meeting. It got updated to a summit, I think, the second or third session. That's right, because it can get complicated with FOCAC. Sometimes it's a summit where there are leaders, 
and sometimes it's a conference and sometimes it's a meeting. So you have to be careful depending on who's attending. But nonetheless, back in 2000, the trajectory of Africa's trading relationships with the world was largely either with South Africa, and there was a big cluster of countries in SADC, the Southern African Development Community, that relied on trade with South Africa, or the former colonial powers. Back then, only two or three countries had China as its largest trading partner. Fast forward now, almost a quarter of a century, and all but a handful of countries in Africa have China as its largest trading partner. And trade is probably in many ways the foremost issue on the minds of African presidents and prime ministers who look at trade as an opportunity to try and bolster their economies, their, in many cases, their ailing economies, against the headwinds that they're facing today from recovering from the pandemic, the debt overhang that's really crushing many of their budgets in a number of different countries, the slowing economy brought on by the war in Ukraine. And so the way out for a lot of countries is to export more. Now, this is creating some problems simply because in the China-Africa trading relationship that we have today, it's one that is highly imbalanced. There was some acknowledgement of that last year at the FOCAC meeting in Dakar, where the final document focused a lot of attention on trade, specifically on agriculture. And we're starting to see a lot more innovation on the agricultural trading front, particularly with the southern Chinese province of Hunan. Now, Kobus, this is a topic that you and I have been talking about, and I feel like we're the only ones talking about it right now is really the diversification of Chinese actors, what we call subnational actors, who are not the central government, but they are provincial governments and they are municipal governments, who are now becoming very, very active and innovative in the trade policy space. Again, this week, Hunan province, once again in the headlines for embarking on a new initiative for a matchmaking fair, I think they called it, for the fruit industry. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So they essentially held a big kind of event where they put big African fruit producers, Kenya and South Africa are the two biggest ones, but there are more of them now coming up the ranks, and put them in contact with major fruit wholesalers and buyers in China. So, you know, obviously for African producers, it's frequently difficult to find the right people to make relationships with in order to move their products into the Chinese market. It's That itself is a very big challenge. So this is, you know, kind of Hunan province essentially, you know, kind of gave everyone a way to to get together and to put the right kind of buyers and the right producers in conversation. So that itself, I mean, it's a relatively small thing, but it must have saved months and months of time on all sides, you know, because it, it simply kind of like sets the ball rolling, I think. Um, so I think it's, it's really innovative and interesting. And that's what's so interesting is that these are not big things. They're not earth-shattering, massive programs. But one of the trends that we see coming out of Hunan and other places, but specifically Hunan, is the variety. So they did, this year earlier, they did a live e-commerce fair where they connected African vendors into, and they plugged it into China's giant e-commerce system. They've launched a new cocoa exchange in Changsha, the capital, which I think right now is mostly Ghanaian cocoa. They've got a coffee street to showcase African coffee. They've launched a free trade zone, a China-Africa free trade zone. Plus, they have a currency conversion operation that basically facilitates trade in RMB. They have the new direct aviation link between Addis Ababa and Changsha, which is very important for mobile phones, but also for perishable fruits and things like that. This has been the gateway for Rwandan Chile to go into China, that big deal that we talked about last year as well. And we've started to see some of the raw coffee beans and avocados that the Kenyans are selling are making their way through Changsha as well. So it's all those little things. The problem is, Kobus, is that no matter how many coffee beans, no matter how many avocados or any of these agricultural products that African countries are selling to China, it's not going to make up for the huge trade deficits that exist between China and the vast majority of its trading partners in Africa. So we wanted to find out more about the state of the trading relationship. And for that, we had a chance to speak earlier this week with Professor Jean-Claude Maswana, who's a professor of macroeconomics and one of the world's foremost experts on Africa-Asia trade. He's based at Ritsumeikan University in Kyoto, Japan. We've had him on the show. He's very well known 
in the China-Africa space. He's originally from the Democratic Republic of Congo, but has about 20 years experience out here in Asia and just a fascinating perspective on the state of China-Africa trade and what needs to be done in order to balance out this relationship. Let's take a listen to our discussion with Jean-Claude Maswana. Jean-Claude, welcome back to the show. It's been a while since we've had a chance to speak with you, and it's wonderful to see you. It's my pleasure. Jean-Claude, you are a professor of macroeconomics and trade. You focus on Africa's trade with developing countries, specifically with East Asia. There have been a lot of movement in the past few days. Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni was just here in Vietnam. Uh, Kenyan President William Ruto was visiting in South Korea. This is something that's relatively new to see African leaders going beyond Japan and China to look for trading relationships, investment, finance, and lending. Do you see these trips by the Ugandan and Kenyan presidents as something exceptional or part of a new trend where African leaders are looking at Asia more broadly? I think the African leaders are just doing what everyone else is doing. As the uh, global center of economic gravity is uh, shifting from the Western economic bloc toward Asia, everyone is uh, more and more paying attention to building a strong economic interactions, economic link with Asian economy. So that is the normal trend that everyone else, not only African leaders, but everyone else is uh, behaving or at least is looking toward Asia in recent years. You know, I wonder if we could take a step back and just look at the African continent's trade with China specifically. The stereotype around African trade is that African countries are mostly exporting raw materials and importing finished goods from China and that generally trade balances are way out of balance. So I was wondering, you know, to which extent you feel that that stereotype is warranted and what are some of the details that we're missing when we look at that kind of big picture? First of all, I'm not so sure <clears throat> whether we are missing something because that is what we call the original sin of African trade pattern. It's not because of China. Perhaps we might be blaming China for not aggressively shifting that original sin. <laughs> but it's not responsible of China or Chinese leadership to shift what is really the, in the DNA of African economic and trade structure. So that is a reality. And in international trade, we have what we call the comparative advantage rules. So this is a kind of rule describing why nation might have advantage for trading. So they must have a different sort of advantages. And then they will be complementing each other as a result of those separate strengths that each of them have. What is the strength of Africa? The strength of Africa is natural resource endowment. And other countries such as China or Japan or Western Europe, they manufacture products which are not natural resources. They use natural resources and process those natural resources into manufactured products. As a result, that's become their industrial strengths while Africa remain locked within the nature-given types of resources. The pattern of trade in this context is likely to remain for decades fixed unless Africa in its own decides to move into processing stage. But so far, unfortunately, whenever African leaders talk about economic diversification or industrialization, or adding value added to their export product, most of the time they expect their trading partner to invest in both capital flows as well as technological know-how, which means if some days China or Japan can do it, it means they're going to undermine their own comparative advantage, which doesn't make sense at all. So politically, economically, it doesn't make sense. So if I understand what you're saying, the subtext of what you're saying is it doesn't make sense to rely on China and Japan to take care of this increasing the value in the supply chain. It should be the domestic policies of African countries to prioritize this themselves. And then any foreign investor who comes in, whether they're from China, Japan, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, they will be able to benefit from this infrastructure that's been laid. Is that what you're saying? 
Exactly. Okay. Well, that that speaks in some respects to what I think is a very unhealthy China-Africa trading relationship. And I'm somewhat of an outlier here because oftentimes when you hear African stakeholders talk about the China-Africa trade relationship, they talk about it in such a way that says, wow, look, it went from $187 billion in 2020 to $254 billion last year. This year, it's projected to reach $300 billion. And they say, see, this is a lot more than what African countries are trading with the United States or with any other bilateral country. Still, Africa trades more with Europe as a bloc than it does with anybody else. But on a bilateral basis, they say, China, you're great. I contend that the relationship on a trading basis is highly distorted. When we look at the fact that more than 55% of all China-Africa trade is concentrated with just five countries. And then when we look at the exports from Africa to China, five countries, South Africa, Angola, DRC, Republic of Congo, and Zambia account for almost 70% of all exports. That means 49 other countries barely export anything to China. So it's a highly, highly imbalanced relationship. And then when we look at the share of China's trade with Africa, the number in absolute terms goes up 187 to 254 to 300 this year. In terms of the relative share of China's total global trade, Africa has remained flat or declined because it hasn't kept up with the rest of China's global trade with other parts of the world. So this is a relationship that is really in need of rebalancing. And I'd like to get your take on my more cynical approach to these numbers. I think I will agree with you, but the point I've been making for years is that we are facing economic trend which result from political choices. At the end of the day, the question boils down to whose responsibility is it to shift, to change this imbalance on unhealthy bilateral trade? That is really the only question that matters. Okay? It is China's responsibilities or Africa's responsibility. That is really the question. And based on what I know, what I've been studying for years, it's African leadership issues, not the Chinese, not the Japanese why China is still trading with a bunch of African countries in limited number of products? Because that is what benefits China. And if African countries are not pleased with the pattern of their bilateral trade with China, it's their responsibility to shift that state of affairs. And that's the first thing. The second is why trade between, if you look at even those bunch of countries you have mentioned, DRC, Nigeria, Angola, you look at the trade balance. It's most of these African countries have been constantly recording trade deficit vis-a-vis -vis China. And then once again, when you analyze this more deeply, it's not of the Chinese responsibility at all. First, China is one of the latest key players in international trade, meaning that China did have a limited influence on setting the rule of international trade, which was set up by the colonial powers and roughly around the 40s and the 70s. Or if we can look at the establishment of the WTO in the mid-90s. Up to that point, China was not really part of the international trading or investment system. The rules that China, when China joined the WTO, China find out the current rules already set. And then there is no way that China, regardless of the weight it has currently in the global trade, China hasn't been able to affect rules or principle of international trade. China has figured out how it can benefit from the existing trading system. And because of these two arguments, it's very, very hard to blame China when it comes to the imbalanced trade relationship with African countries. Can we, you know, kind of explore the thinking on the African policymaker side on, you know, kind of a little bit more in, in relation to this? I always find this kind of resistance or kind of lack of movement on the African side in terms of diversifying the economies, in terms of like aggressively trying to kind of move up value chains and, and kind of like making the most of trade with Asia. Like I always find that like, you know, the fact that they're not more proactive on this, I find a little bit baffling. And we were discussing this with a Southern African academic a few weeks ago, and he was saying, 
saying like, look, the first assumption you need to challenge is that African governments are necessarily that interested in development. Because, you know, kind of from his perspective, he was saying like, actually, if you like certain African governments that are very focused on maintaining political control, then developing the economy, diversifying the economy and upskilling the population is actually not such a high priority because upskilled middle class people are much harder to rule than poor disempowered people. So is that too cynical? And like, what is some of the African thinking behind these decisions to not move so proactively up the value chain? Okay, I will fully agree with that cynical (laughs) explanation because that is the argument also that I've been making. The three of us, we do have experience and quite a good knowledge of the East Asian development experience, especially the Chinese experience. And then we can compare what China has been able to do with African countries' experience. If you look at the case of China or Korea or Taiwan, Singapore, or even Japan much early, upskilling the population was the first step. As a result, much of the infrastructure project in Japan, in Taiwan, even now in China, is done by the local. They use the local skills. So the first thing is upskilling your population so that you can strengthen the absorptive capacity, allowing them to imitate foreign technology. Most of this foreign technology will be in the public domain. And then you will be able, if you have to rely on the external world, that will be for a limited amount of initial investment. But the human capital, the skill, the local capital, the human capital accumulation is essential in the process of catching up, in the process of transformation. So it's a step that you cannot avoid. For political reason, most of African political system consists in using the foreign skills, foreign capital, the financial capital, as well as foreign technology. There is no successful case in history of industrialization, of transformation, while those key factors of production of industrial transformation are foreign. It means it's very costly, and those industries, if investment infrastructure or industries can be built, they won't be competitive, especially under globalization, It's unthinkable. It will not happen. So in one sense, there's a policy problem, as you are highlighting, but then there are some other issues that are at play. So if a country like Zimbabwe wants to move up the value chain as it is trying to do now by building mineral processing in-country, the problem, though, is they don't have enough power in order to do that. So then we have an infrastructure problem. But then you have people like economist David Ndee in Kenya, who say that the massive investment that Kenya has made in infrastructure, namely through Chinese-backed loans to build things like the Standard Gauge Railway, was a tragic mistake. And instead, money should have been devoted to building human capacity and human development, knowledge, healthcare, education, all of that. And then jobs will come. So now that we have this matrix of issues, policy, infrastructure, and lack of human development and human capacity, How do you prioritize those in order to, if you were to guide or to advise an African leader or president or prime minister about what they should do first? The first thing, obviously, as far as I'm concerned, based on what I've been able to see in more than 20 years in Asia, is human capital. There is no way a country can develop, can build any sustainable, long-lasting industry without first accumulating skills. Especially nowadays, one of the characteristics of today's economy is what we call the knowledge economy. What is crucial to build any competitive economy today is first knowledge. It's now, and we all agree, and this morning I attended a seminar discussion with engineering department this morning. We were discussing the same thing, how to make sure that in the next generation, our university is going to train people who are going to have knowledge, but who are going to be able to create even further knowledge. Because we are aware that the competition defining strength in the future will be based more on knowledge than ever before in human history. 
So, Kobus, let me take this, and I want to pick up a conversation that you and I had together when I was in Johannesburg with you a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that I noticed was that in Southeast Asia, which suffered the horrors of colonialism as brutally and as violent as anything that was in Africa, there's no way to compare the miseries of what the French did here and the British did with what they did in Africa. But you said something very interesting when I noticed and I remarked that in the Discourses here in Southeast Asia, no one references colonialism. No one is looking backwards. Everybody is looking forwards. You hear this all the time. And then you brought up, Kobus, this very interesting point that it is counterproductive to compare the traumas of colonialism in Southeast Asia with that of Africa because they are so very different. Walk us through those differences in terms of what separates the two? Because this speaks in many ways to what Jean-Claude is talking about in terms of education, which roots back to language, which you talked about. One point, and in this I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm drawing from my mother's PhD research, and, and this is something she really focused on, particularly the, the role of language in kind of national developmental state kind of projects. And, you know, one of the things that she pointed out was that in a country like Japan and South Korea, you know, developmental projects could be linked to national identity very effectively because it was all done through one language. You know, kind of the fact that the development of the Hangul writing system in Korea was itself, could itself, you know, in that way kind of feed into some kind of like nationalist kind of citizen developmental project. And then it also means that technical information and government bureaucratic information was a available to people in their first language. In comparison, and, and that is also true in some cases in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, in Thailand, and so on. In Africa, indigenous language systems were destroyed. And they weren't just destroyed you know, kind of in the process, they were actively and on purpose destroyed. And the effect is now that in a lot of African countries, you know, 80% of the citizens of a country don't necessarily speak the official, you know, kind of organizing language as a first language or even don't speak it at all. You know, so that means it's like they're immediately kind of cut off from what the government is doing, but they're also kind of, it's much harder to link this kind of like development with national identity with language, the way that it could frequently be done in Asia. That's one big factor. And uh, Jean-Claude, I was wondering kind of what you think of that and what the kind of options are for Africa in kind of moving forward with its own form of development. First of all, I agree with that reading to a large extent, but I'm pointing out that language is things of the past, of the present and the future, which means there is a way of changing it. And the language is a part of we, if we, we can extend the technical knowledge I was mentioning, we can include also language, which is a process that people in the country can learn. So I can put it as part of what we mentioned before, the sort of effort government have to put in place in terms of upskilling the population. So one of the area could be uh, making the population learning a new language, which is a new development tools that people need because language is one of the skills that we are talking about. So and the second, I will say that development, as many poor countries have been defining it, consists of transforming where we are based on where we come from and then setting certain goals in terms of where we are going. So any government have the power, the capacity to educate people in terms of providing them with the new language, which is official to the country. And that language could be a foreign language, it could be a national language. So that effort can be done. So I just came back from Hanoi in Vietnam. And the two universities I was invited to talk to, and everyone in the audience, most students I was interacting with, I was talking to them, mainly in English. And then I did meet some young students around the 20s. They came and then started talking to me in French. Okay? So education has that capacity to produce new types of individuals according to development goals, according to the vision of the country. So that is a task which falls within the responsibility of the national government. And it's something we have seen countries doing it. Singapore is one typical case in which you have a people coming from different backgrounds in a tiny space of land and in which the government put in place a certain policy of creating a national identity, adopted a foreign language, which has served the country very well, and spread technology, spread knowledge, and 
you have a strong national identity in Singapore and you have the sort of people, individuals, workers, human labor contributing to the development as defined by the national government. So we do have really development experience showing how language can be formatted, how in new types of individual can be created out of nowhere and how national identity can be built for the sake of industrialization. And the case of Singapore is a successful one. You have a lot of experience traveling in this region. You were just in Hanoi. Hopefully the next time you're in Vietnam, you'll come down and see me in Saigon. You've been to Singapore. Malaysia is a very similar example as Singapore, a very multicultural, a dynamic mix of Indonesians, Singaporeans, ethnic Chinese, Indians, all kind of together, yet they formed a national identity. So there are some very interesting models, despite the differences that Cobus highlighted in the historical traumas of colonialism between Southeast Asia, and Africa. That being said, as somebody who has spent decades now in this region, you look at education, you've looked at trade. When you talk to your counterparts in Africa, other scholars, other policymakers, what do you advise them as the takeaways? What can they learn from the Southeast Asian or Asian development experience that you think they're not doing right now that is applicable, not some highfalutin thing. You know, China had the Communist Party, Japan had a unified government. Those are things that are unique to those countries. What are some practical, tangible, actionable things that you think some African countries can take away from the development experience here in Asia? That's a tough question. Okay, I will maybe pinpoint a couple of things. The first will be discipline. I came to realize that the word discipline, broadly defined to means commitment, is really one of the lessons that I've discovered in, in Asia recently. It doesn't matter what is the political system, communist or more liberal type, but what is important to keep what the, have been described as the social contract between citizen and the government to build a trust and based on that trust to produce the result we need discipline. Discipline on the side of the official of the government. Discipline on the side of the people. Everyone have really to play by the sort of agreement, by the agreed rules. Everyone have to contribute to the agreed goal. So discipline is really essential. And many African countries, I will not be accusing them of being disciplined. On both sides, the population are more complacent. They are more tolerant to politicians. And then politicians lack disciplines. They can promise anything. They don't need even to care about their own promises. And the people will always understand and try to let them go with uh, anything that they can play with. The second thing is, in Africa, very often, leaders tend to follow what I used to call the counter uh, logic. And I will illustrate that so that maybe the audience can understand. If you observe carefully in Asia, Asian countries up to date don't have Asian Union or a certain headquarter like the African Union. But what they did, they are more pragmatic. They trade among themselves. They invest among themselves. They produce a lot among themselves. And then once trade or interaction among themselves reach a certain level, they will build a sort of coordination mechanism. But they keep it very simple. Why? When you start building institutions, heavy institutions, before achieving anything, the institution is going to take much of the budget. Institutions is going to create their own interest because those heavy institutions become interest group in themselves or in its own. Most of the time, they will be acting as a gravity for any transformation in which they might be losing power as countries start empowering individuals. And African countries always proceed with institutions, African Union, the free trade agreement. You see, one country will be a member of so many different kind of institutions of trade integration. But when you look at the amount of intra-regional trade in Africa, is the lowest among all the regions across the globe. But each African country belongs to at least the four or five regional trade integration schemes. African countries have African Union. They set up African Union 
before even European Union set up the bureaucracy in Brussels. African Union have already the headquarters and the administration. While even Europe, they were just building trade and economic integration and custom integration, not setting up heavy administration in Brussels. African countries proceed always in the reverse. This day, if you look at most of the discussion, everyone is talking about monetary integration of African countries. Even economic and trade integration is still at infancy level. But people are already talking about building more and more institutions, bureaucratic schemes, while we don't start even producing yet. We don't trade among ourselves because raw materials, natural resources, most countries have those natural resources with their neighboring countries because it's given by nature. That's right. Rwanda is not going to start selling coffee to Kenya. Exactly. But you have those countries starting by signing so many trade integration schemes. Even though they can trade, because they are trading in natural product, the amount of trade that they can create, the potential to expand trade is going to be fixed by nature which is not the case when you are trading in manufacturer product. You can give up. At some point, Japan have to give up some of the early industry that made Japan took off. Japan have to give up those industry. South Korea, Taiwan have to capture those industry and start their own development. And over time, Japan have been able to give up certain industries because these are not nature given. And then as a result, everyone will end up with one areas in which they are stronger, they have a competitive advantage, and then they will be able to keep trading over time. But if you don't do that, your development, your trade depends on natural resources. You cannot keep trading different kind of coopers. DRC and Zambia will never be trading in each other cooper. No. So the second problem to summarize is African leaders should be serious in terms of what exactly are the priority or the order of the process? They should not start building institutions, bureaucracy, creating interest groups. Rather, they should start producing and then having reasons to set up institutions. Institutions should not be set up for political, ideological reasons. If you are poor, you don't have a luxury of financing bureaucracy. African poor people most of the poor people in countryside in Africa, they have no idea about African Union, the headquarter in Ethiopia. They have no idea what is that institution for. They have no idea. In Asia, there is no such institution because everyone, leaders in Asia, they know they don't need those institutions. They need to actually improve the life of their people. So just following your logic, am I correct in assuming that you're not very optimistic that the African free trade, like African continental free trade agreement is necessarily going to kick off massive intra-African trade? No, def definitely it's not the first time because the previous trade integration screams that existed even 20 years ago or 25 years ago when I was a PhD student, that's what I was telling people that first, none of this regional trade integration schemes is going to succeed. And second, African leaders will be creating others. I was sure because in a, this is reading of African leaders. Once development is not succeeded, their instinct is to create new institutions because the belief is that previous institutions are to blame, not leadership, but we need to create new institutions because that is really the only logic that African leaders understand. In Asia, nobody, I have seen, no official will think in that way. Well, I'll agree with you on the trade front in Asia that there's much more integration and cross-border trade. I think it's very dangerous to over-romanticize the situation in Asia because there's also an enormous amount of security concerns that are in this part of the world, that these countries, for the most part, still have large unresolved issues from World War II. 
Japan, China, South Korea, China, the South China Sea, East Vietnam Sea, the border with India and China. I mean, it is a mess on the security side. So there's two tracks, and it's really hard to reconcile how we see so much intra-regional trade and economic integration, which is really wonderful to see. But at the same time, the political security disputes are getting increasingly toxic. And those are two parallel tracks with one another. Just very quickly want to shift gears before we go, because it's getting late for you in Kyoto. One of the trends that we've watched over the past five or six years has been the steady decline of Chinese infrastructure financing in Africa. Basically, starting in 2017, you can look at the charts kind of go down, down, and to the point now where it's very, very low. And China, for the most part, is pulling out of the large-scale infrastructure financing business in Africa. This summer, back in August, Japan came through with a $30 billion announcement at its TCAD 8 summit. I think it was TCAD 8. TCAD, for those of you, is, correct me here, Kobus and Jean-Claude, Tokyo International Conference on African Development. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So that is the Japanese equivalent of FOCAC, if you will, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. Jean-Claude, what are we to take from Japan's interest in Africa Part of it seems to be motivated by their historical competition with China. Part of it is motivated by the fact that the Japanese, unlike the Americans and to some extent the Europeans, are very good at building infrastructure in the developing world. Uh, Their companies are far more competent at doing it. Here in Vietnam, the Japanese are building quite a bit of infrastructure in my neighborhood. The Saigon subway has been under development for a number of years and whatnot. But help us understand a little bit from your vantage point in Japan What do you think is Japan's motivation for pushing $30 billion into African development? First of all, I think it's a debatable issue whether Japan is motivated by um, the aggressive presence of China in Africa or not, that there is a huge debate on that. I will just point out that TCAD was first initiated in 1993. By the time, China was almost not economically present in Africa. And then Japan has kept is commitment, long commitment since 1993, by holding TICAD until this uh, eighth edition. So, meaning that the motivation of the Japanese engagement with Africa, although nowadays it's really we cannot deny that the pressure coming from China presence in Africa has something also to do with the renewed commitment of Japan. But the initial commitment definitely it had nothing to do with Chinese presence in Africa because back then, China was not there. Now, Japan has its own comparative advantage when it comes to its own strengths, when it comes to providing development assistance to developing countries, not only to Africa, but Japan have strong experience, a strong positive record when you look at into what was the sort of assistance Japan provided to some developing countries in Asia among some of the successful development experience in Asia, Japan did play a key role. And based on that experience, it made sense that in late 1980s and early 1990s, that Japan thought the experience accumulated in Asia could be duplicated in Africa. And then in part, that was one of the motivation behind the TICAD event. So, Basically, sharing Japanese experience in terms of both one of the OECD countries that emerged out of complete destruction in the 1940s is one of the motivation. And then being one of the donor countries, as I've mentioned, in Asia, where we had the few countries who successfully achieved development, economic development process, convinced Japan that they have something to share with African countries. And then... These days, I think the presence of Africa, of Japan in, in, in Africa, can be also explained by Japan's own interest. So we cannot really ignore that, regardless of motivation, the intention or the goodwill to share development experience, the pressure from China. But Japan, as industrial powerhouse, does have its own interest of securing access to certain strategic mineral resources that African countries are rich in. So these three motivations can, broadly speaking, explain why Japan is actively re-engaging African countries. 
as you point out, Japan has its own unique long history in aiding development and particularly kind of also infrastructure aid development. At a moment when China is, seems to be reassessing some of its engagement in infrastructure with Africa, do you think that there are any lessons that China can take from Japan's experience as a development instigator in the global south? I think this is really just my very, very personal view because I've talked about this in Beijing many times, especially in 2010, 2014. Back then, I was predicting already the trend that Eric have mentioned. I knew back then that at some point, China would realize that they cannot keep investing into massive infrastructure in African countries based on what I was warning back then as the absorptive capacity of infrastructure when you are providing assistance to a, a developing country. For many years, I should mention, the World Bank and the IMF, most of development partners, including the JICA and others, they have known this for years. Any assistance to a developing country, especially countries still having to build institutions, still having to build the economy, there is a sort of capacity of infrastructure that country can accommodate. If infrastructure is being funded by their own financial resources, that's fine. But it's financed by loans. There will be a problem because loan repayment is based on export capacity of a country. If the country is exporting primary commodity, the price of primary commodity we know fluctuates a lot, which means it's behind the control of policymakers. And then if you provide huge loans for the needed infrastructure, I should mention infrastructure in many African countries are badly needed. Many countries need massive infrastructure. But if the financing of those needed infrastructure is based on loans, most of African countries, given the current economic stretch of those countries, their capacity to pay back huge debts related to infrastructure is very, very limited. Policymakers and many Africans tend to make a mistake. The Economic needs, infrastructure needs, doesn't mean capacity to manage the equipment or to profit from equipment. Okay? These are two different things. Even though nowadays I travel a lot, I wish I own a private jet. But if somebody said to me, you need a private jet, this is a loan, we are going to get you a private jet. I will know in one year I will end up in jail because I will struggle to pay back the loan. It will be just a matter of time. I will be in trouble. The bank funding the jet will also end up into big trouble because I might not have the capacity to generate constant income required to pay back the loans. And that just applies to infrastructure. A number of African countries, including Kenya, are borrowing for budget deficits, which is even less productive money. Yes. Because you're not generating anything out of that. It's just covering a deficit. So this is a big problem. And then... Back, let's say, 12 years ago when I was pointing these things out, many officials in Beijing, they were not happy with that. And even in one conference I sent, they insisted that I must send my PowerPoint before the event. I did. I got a phone call with a strong indication that slide six through eight, we strongly recommend that you delete those slides. Welcome to China. And the pressure was too strong that you must drop those slides and we don't want to see those parts in your presentation. But I bet you they would love to see those slides now. Their thinking has changed a lot on this. I bet you if you went back and gave that same presentation today in Beijing, they would be very open to those slides. Don't you think? I, I think so. I think so. But so for me, most of African countries now should be very careful. Any debt by definition is a problem. Unless it's a domestic debt, foreign debt, no matter what, it's a problem. It should be seen first as a problem rather than as a blessing. That is the reason countries such as Japan or Korea, they aggressively, and even China, they rely a lot on domestic saving for a good reason. China, especially China, mainland China, could not have made it if they were relying on foreign saving as African countries have been doing. They would not have been able to make it, period. So if there is another lesson African countries should learn from China is the idea of resisting massive loan for infrastructure coming from China. Because even when China was poor, 
at some point, China was resisting massive assistance from Japan by the time JICA wanted to be more present. The Chinese leadership was resisting that idea. Even though their motivation was, have been reported to be more political, but based on my understanding, they understood that even economically, it was risky, not only politically, but economically, it's risky. Jean-Claude, you have given us so much to think about. We really appreciate your time. I mean, it's really, again, I don't even know where to begin, but uh, Jean-Claude Moswana is a professor of macroeconomics and trade at Ritsumeikan University in beautiful Kyoto, Japan. Thank you so much for staying up late to join us. I know you are on Twitter. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, where can they find you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter account is uh, at Mark G.C. Maswana, in, in one word. I'm also on Facebook. Just use Jean-Claude Maswana. You can follow my crazy uh, view, radical opinion. and uh... We love radical opinions. <laughs> we do love your radical opinions. I'll put links to both his mm. Facebook and also Jean-Claude's Twitter account in the show notes. Jean-Claude, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much and have a wonderful evening. Thank you. Kobus, it was so refreshing for me to hear from Jean-Claude that many of the cynical viewpoints that I have about China-Africa trade and that this is fundamentally an unhealthy relationship. He also thinks the same way. And again, this is something that you don't hear in the popular discourse about China-Africa trade, is that it is the largest trading partner, it is growing, it is, you know, they're selling avocados now from Tanzania and from Kenya, but that's not gonna close this massive trade deficit. When you look at Kenya, they exported something like $200 million last year to China, but imported around $4 billion. That is not a healthy relationship. And I think it speaks to the disequilibrium that exists in this relationship, and I don't know how to fix it if, as Jean-Claude says, that policymakers are just not putting their heads in the right space right now, which is focusing on human capacity development, education, social welfare, and instead we see this obsession, as David and Dee points out, with big infrastructure projects that are financed by foreign debt, which, again, as Jean-Claude laid out, is fundamentally not healthy economically. Yes, I mean, it's a big problem. I think what also is very valuable for me from speaking with Jean-Claude, among many things, is this point that he makes about the tendency in Africa to set up institutions first. You know, and, and with that then comes an entire kind of, you know, very kind of rosy, glassed kind of view of kind of a future-orientated kind of discussion about everything is going to be great, we're going to do these amazing things, we set up these institutions, and now they're going to be doing dot 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 this kind of like projection into the future of success rather than like by by setting up institutions rather than basing the institutions on success already achieved and they're particularly kind of like the, the kind of relatively humble things of selling things to a neighboring country you know those kind of really basic kind of building blocks of trade is something that they're not really kind of like putting the requisite kind of energy into particularly not in terms of like upskilling the populations in kind of making those first steps kind of up the value chain but isn't that institution obsession that many Africans have, as we've heard from Jean-Claude and what you're talking about today too, also enabled by the discourse power in the West, that is that the UN, the whole aid industry, the development industry in Europe, in the US, they love these institutions. They will hold 55 webinars on how great it is to have ECOWAS trading, you know, launching this new thing, and they'll have, you know, development programs talking about the AFC FTA, and they will just shower money onto these institutions because it's something they recognize they're set up for. But at the end of the day, we're hearing that it's not the healthiest thing. This comes back down that sometimes the best things are the smallest things. It's that education. It's the smallholder farmer. It's the trade things that really then add up to the macro success. And that's, again, what I think here in Southeast Asia they've done quite well. They did land reform. They've done a lot of agricultural reforms. These are not sexy topics. These don't grab the headlines at an LSE forum in London or at an Oxford forum in London on, on development theory. But yet they work. The intra ASEAN trade agreements that they've done, where cars are manufactured in Thailand and sold here in Vietnam. Not that sexy, but they work and they're very effective. And that's, again, my frustration a little bit with the aid industry that I think they enable a lot of this bad behavior. 
Yes, and I completely agree with Jean-Claude's call for human capacity development. That's a really big thing. It's really important in Africa. Problem is, is, is that in the aid industry, almost anything can be can be characterized as human capacity development. You know, like almost anything can be said to be increasing the conversation or like kind of like allowing rural women to do fill in the blank. You know, it's like there's a lot of cynicism around the idea of capacitating, you know, kind of like poor populations and a lot of kind of like, you know, money changing hands under that rubric that doesn't actually lead to any real skills. And that's... And, and, and Kobus, yeah. we have to put our cards on the table here. We are complicit in that as much as anybody else is. Yes. I mean, we are part of that very same system that is doing that. So we have to be upfront with everybody that we are partners in that system as well. But that is the nature of the world we live in upfront. We are complicit, 100%. We have to say that. We are. And I mean, in our slight defense, is that we tend to focus on a very narrow niche. And therefore, we try and kind of add a certain level of China knowledge to a population so that people aren't wasting their time talking about non-existent problems like the importing of Chinese laborers and actually deal with real problems like debt transparency in Chinese contracts. So helping people to understand what the real problem is and what a fake narrative is that's been kind of pushed around by other governments, for example, I think is a form of capacity building. But then, you know, like, you know, people, you know, it's, it's, it's once we start actually thinking like what actual skills will be useful on the ground, like, for example, example solar installation you know like those skills have to be driven from the inside out but they can't be planted by outside actors they have to come organically from the needs of the population and the needs of the government and that then frequently depends on the government being willing to listen to what the actual needs of the population is and thinking kind of creatively about how to make things better what you frequently don't see in african countries sadly I don't know if I 100% agree with Jean-Claude's assessment on the lack of discipline and that here in Asia, there is a lot of discipline. And you hear this a lot when you see these ridiculous videos on Twitter of like 600 Chinese schoolchildren all lined up and, you know, marching in unison to one another. And everybody goes, look at the discipline. They do these with the Japanese as well. These circulate on African social media quite a bit and where they say, see, we suck, they're great. And we see this all the time. I don't know if, no, I, I, I do know. I don't like those narratives because I, I think they're weird. I want to bring up conversations that you and I have had in South Africa where people don't care about politics, not because they're undisciplined or they're lazy, but because politics suck for them. Politics don't deliver anything for them. So we've talked about in South Africa, why aren't people more angry about ESCOM? Because people are just getting on with their lives to figure out ways to overcome the power situation. Why aren't people more concerned about, you know, complaining to politicians about crime and security, which they are, of course, but they're just moving on to find private solutions to it, private solutions for water. This is the same situation in Nigeria and in other parts of Africa as well, where government simply is not delivering enough for its people. So people are just moving on, very industrious, by the way, creatively. But that doesn't mean they lack discipline. And so I don't 100% agree with that. And I don't know if that's what he was trying to get to, but that's how I heard it. And I think people are just saying, you know what? F it. If they're not going to figure out a way to help make my life better, I'm going to do this on my own. And in many ways, that is the ultimate discipline of just getting on with your life. Well, yeah, that's always the thing, is that African populations always make things work. By hook or by crook, they just kind of like manage to like wangle their way through to kind of to make things work at 30%. And then they try and kind of concentrate their lives in that 30% in order to just kind of make it through. And African leaders are very happy with them doing that. They're okay with that. You know, kind of they don't, they, you know, they, they don't, they don't kind of like set any higher standards than that. So, and so the thing with, you know, kind of why don't South Africans complain more about ESCOM? I mean, South Africans complain about ESCOM day in, day out. They are... Uh, you know, kind of like you, you can complain yourself to death. You can complain from now on until you die. And like kind of, you know, kind of an ESCOM won't have changed a bit, you know. Or you can get on with your life and just figure something else out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so in the end, you know, kind of that is the dark side of what people always talk about. Like, you know, I always find it quite ghoulish when European and, and, and American commentators talk about African resilience, you know, because that is what that is. It's just like trying to make stuff work while everything's falling apart around you and nothing ever changes, you know? So it's not necessarily such, an, such a kind of a sunny thing to praise people for. 
And by the way, this is not unique to Africa either. Here in Vietnam, it's a very similar situation. South Asia and Pakistan, Bangladesh and India, also a very similar situation where government in many instances just doesn't deliver. And as an American, this is a complaint that we're starting to talk about a lot more, that the gap between the ruler and the ruled is growing wider and that people just feel alienated from their governments. Uh, of course, the United States is incomparable at this current stage of development to what we're seeing in most developing countries, but that sentiment is, is very relatable, I think, for a lot of people. So let's leave the conversation there. Fascinating to reconnect with Jean-Claude Mosmana. We spoke with him a couple of years ago. I highly recommend you go back into the archives, take a listen to that earlier conversation. As you can hear, every single time we talk with Jean-Claude, it is worthwhile listening. So I highly recommend you take a look at that. Very quickly, the events in China that are unfolding over the past a couple of days, weeks, you know, we're recording this, you know, a few days into this. We're going to avoid kind of commenting on it in too much detail on the show simply because the events are changing so quickly on the ground in terms of the protest. The point for us that we're going to keep an eye on is we're going to mention all week in our coverage in our newsletter and on our website and in the podcast is what's going to be the impact from the outside looking in as opposed to the day to day. There is some fantastic coverage of what's going on from incredible China watchers and China scholars, Chinese and international, that's on Twitter. Let's hope that Elon Musk does not completely implode Twitter in the next few weeks because we really need it for times like this. There's some great coverage. So keep an eye on what we're doing on the site for some analysis, again, on the narratives and on how developing countries, in my view, will eventually be brought in to help shape that narrative and promote some of the Chinese talking points as has happened in the past with Hong Kong, Xinjiang, South China Sea, and other places. So let's leave the conversation there, Cobus. We'll be back again next week with another episode of the China in Africa podcast. For Cobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at chinaglobalsouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afrique on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic.